Thank you, Therese, that warm welcome. How's everybody doing today? It's a beautiful, a little chilly outside today, but that's, uh, that's how I like it. So I felt like the Lord was smiling on me today when I had to wear my hoodie. This is my kind of weather. Some of you grimace at uh, the chilliness outside, but it's a beautiful day to be here. I'm glad to be here with you. A special welcome to any of you who might be visiting with us uh, for the first time today. Welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Also, welcome to anybody who might be um, listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship here with us this morning. I just want to uh, give just a brief shout out to those of you who have engaged uh, in our 21-day fast. We are a week into it. I hope you're doing well. Some of you look like you've given up coffee <laughs> and maybe need to pick me up, but hopefully the Holy Spirit will fill in the gaps this morning. But I just want to encourage you guys to continue through this. We've just got two more weeks. We always see an uptick in God's presence individually as well as corporately. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with fasting, fasting is simply just an opportunity for us to pull back from some of the things that compete with God for uh, our attention and affection. So many people choose to give up certain types of food. Some people give up food altogether, consulting with their physician. Some people give up Facebook, social media, smartphones, the whole deal, just so they can unplug from things that distract them from hearing God in a more excellent way. And so uh, we have about 14 more days left. If you, if you skipped out on this week, it's not too late to engage and to start today. And so if you have any questions about that, just come and talk to me. I'll, I'll gladly explain what we're doing on that. Well, I have the pr- privilege this morning, I have the privilege this morning of continuing a series that I started last week, a series that I'm simply calling Rhythms. Rhythms. What we said last week is that many people don't live rich and satisfying lives, and that's really a shame. It's especially a shame when Christians don't live rich and satisfying lives, mainly because A rich and satisfying life is the life that Jesus promises us when we come into his family. I'm not talking about wealth and riches and celebrity and fame. I'm talking about a life that just works, a life that's functional, a life that has some rhythm. And many of our lives are harder than they have to be simply because they lack a meaningful rhythm to them. We defined rhythm last week as a strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound, a strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or or sound. And so when rhythm is thrown off in any realm, it just, you know, something doesn't quite feel right. Whether it's music or some of you are runners and you know if you're running, you got a rhythm or a squirrel runs in front of you and you get sort of tripped up, it's kind of hard, it gets harder to regain that rhythm back in every area of life. And, And what we said last week is that even the most difficult of tasks, get easier when there's a rhythm to it. The most challenging things in life, right, challenging activities, when there's a rhythm to it, it makes it a little bit easier. And so the rhythm that we speak of, particularly in this Christian life, is when all the moving parts of our life are dancing to the same rhythm, rallying around the same beat. And so this is the essence of what it means to have a life with Jesus. We welcome Jesus into the room of our life. When he moves in, he moves our stuff out, and he moves his stuff in. And when he moves his stuff in, we got the right stuff in our house. Jesus then becomes the conductor of all. When we do this right, Jesus becomes the conductor of all of those moving parts. And some of you have the right stuff. You've, you've invited the right stuff into your life. You've got rhythms of this and rhythms of that, but sometimes it's just sort of out of whack. And you need the great conductor who's got all this good stuff in your life to help all those things work together and talk together. Jesus is the conductor. Some of you have most of the good stuff, but you've got this like one clunky thing that doesn't belong. And everything else is rolling. You've got this, all these other things, and you've you, you got this one clunky thing that's throwing off the rhythm. And, and if we're doing this right, we invite Conductor Jesus to kick that thing out of the band so that life can be smooth again. We're talking about rhythm. We read this passage last week, Matthew 11. This is Jesus saying, uh, speaking. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it, learn the unforced rhythms of grace, keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely 
and lightly. And so Jesus isn't promising us a carefree life. He's not promising us a challenge-free life. In fact, the Christian life is probably the hardest thing that you will ever do. He's simply saying that we make life harder than it has to be. And what he's asking us to do is engage his unforced rhythm of living so that we can live the good life, so that we can participate in the good life in a more excellent way. And we started last week by talking about, uh, you know, uh, beginning this by engaging a rhythm of healthy Christian community. Talking about that as being one of the most important sacred rhythms that a Christian can install in their life. We talked about making the weekend service here a priority. We talked about making small groups a priority. We talked about uh, making reaching out to others and sharing this with the world around us a, a huge priority. Um, and this week, we want to continue this series by talking about engaging a healthy rhythm of generosity. Healthy rhythm of generosity. These, this is one of the things, right, that Jesus moves in when he comes into our heart, when he invades our space. He brings this huge moving part of generosity. We talk about generosity because this is easy for us to forsake. It's easy for us to, you know, slip this under the bed or tuck this in the couch cushion and have this sort of fall out of the rhythm of how we live life is especially dangerous because this is essential for the Christian life. This is essential for the Christian life. And I'm defining generosity as simply uh, being liberal in sharing, being unselfish. The opposite of being generous is being selfish. So the very essence of what it means to be generous is to be liberal in your giving, to be sharing, and to be unselfish. And to get to a place of generosity, you have to understand what it means to do good, helpful things for other people consistently, even when it costs you something. And I would go as far as to say is if you're doing this right, it's going to cost you something. If you're doing generosity right, it's going to put you out a bit. And what it means to be mature in this area, it means to sort of arrive at the conclusion, and we say this every time we talk about generosity, is that your life is not about you. That this life is not about you. And I'll talk to myself this morning, life is not about me. I have to remind myself about that over and over and over because this, if I don't understand this, then generosity simply won't happen. If I, if I don't understand this, then I'll give sparingly, I'll sow sparingly, I'll, I'll regard others, in, in, you know, if I have the time, if I have the capacity, if I have something left over. But if I understand that this life is not about me, then it completely changes the game. I'm talking about generosity this morning. And so to be generous sits at the very foundation, very core of the Christian life. That is to say that if you are not a generous person, you're not doing the Christian life right. This is not something where we can just say, well, oh, there's, 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 I am who I am. Just sort of deal with it. That's just one of my quirks. I'm, I'm selfish. I'm stingy. I, I want the edges of my life for myself. Hey, that's just, that's just how God made me. That's not how he made you. In fact, he's spending lots of energy and lots of time trying to rewire a selfish heart wiring, which, by the way, we all come out of the box that way. And so you're not defective, right? This is how, this is how we come into the world. Babies don't come out, you know, you know, apologizing to their mother for the nine months of discomfort and moving around and throwing up morning sickness. They say, I'm sorry for that. How selfish of me. They come out screaming, crying, because they, they want, you know, they want to be wrapped up. They want to be, you know, held and fed, right? Life is about us from the very beginning. And so this is something that Jesus has to tweak in us. And so, the, the, you know, Satan loves to get us confused about generosity because that's one of the ways that he robs us of the good life. I keep defining the good life for us. Is not, this is the life that God intended us to have. This isn't riches and wealth. This is the life that God intended us to have. And one of the ways that the enemy robs us of the good life is to keep you thinking about you. He doesn't even have to inject some devious sin into your life or to send you some no-good boyfriend that'll run you off. Sometimes he does that. But really all he has to do is to get you focused on you. 
Because Christians, particularly those who live a generous life, tend to have the best lives. I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 8. It says, but a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. A generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. And what that basically means, you know a generous person because they're scheming, right? They're always thinking. The wheels are always turning. They're looking for opportunities to be generous. They're looking for opportunities to be a blessing to somebody else. And so we all scheme and we're all planning. The difference is that a generous person is usually scheming and planning ways that they can be a blessing to somebody else. You can't just run, you know, in casual conversation, a need by a generous person without their wheels turning. You know, they see little Johnny's coat is torn and say, hey, what happened to Johnny's coat? Well, he tore that coat jumping over the fence. And nobody got no money to replace that. He's just going to deal with that until next winter. A generous person goes, yeah, right. We'll see about that. And they've already devised an opportunity where they're going to go get a coat and bless Johnny with that because they just can't turn that off about themselves. The people in their life have access to their generosity. Well, on the other hand, on the other hand, the selfish person, the person that leans toward their heart wiring to think about themselves and think about their own life, They don't even hear and see the needs around them. Their schemes and their plans are designed around them, how they can get more, how they can save the reserves for themselves. A generous person devises generous things because a generous person has tapped into what it means to live the good life because the good life is directly tied to our purpose on this earth. Anybody remember what our purpose on this earth is? Why are we here? To love God and to love people, we should know that by now. To love God and to love others. And you can't love God and love others without giving to God and giving to others. You can't love God and love people without being generous to God and others. To love is to be faithfully giving of ourselves to someone other than ourselves. I'll say that again. To love is to be faithfully giving of ourselves to someone other than ourselves. God says, love me. God says, love others. And so this morning, we want to dig into this thing called generosity because it's one of the sore spots in our walk with Jesus. It's one of those things that we conveniently forget about and it's so important to rob us of the good life that we have to talk about it regularly here. I'm looking at a passage of Scripture here, Matthew chapter 6. Would you turn there with me this morning in your Bibles or on your phones or tablets? Matthew chapter 6. It's usually very quiet, by the way, when we talk about generosity. And so I've budgeted for that as the preacher. Matthew chapter 6. And I know this is a challenging uh, subject. I know it's a touchy subject. I know some of you come from uh, church, church backgrounds where you've seen um, sort of talks about generosity and giving abuse. We're sensitive to that. We're aware of that. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to shy away from something that is important, sort of staple in the, uh, the Christian curriculum, so we want to deal with it today. It's also important to, for you to know that the church is doing well financially. Um, we're having our best year of giving yet, thanks to those of you who give generously. So we haven't dusted off the old generosity sermon to, you know, to stoke you for a little more cash, right? This is just part of the Christian curriculum. We're talking about generosity. So while you get Matthew chapter 6, let me pray and we'll dig into this. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning uh, for the opportunity to come and worship you. I thank you, Father, that you are always in your loving fatherly way, you're always calling us higher. You have more and better for us, and you don't just leave us stuck. You always put your finger on the ways that we can come up, that we can ascend, that we can climb. And so, Lord, we submit our way to you this morning. We give you permission to speak truth to us in a loving way. And so, Father, I pray that you would go before us this morning and move any obstacles, anything that will cause us to bristle at the truth, Anything that will cause us to stumble or be offended, Father, I pray that your truth and your power would land well today. Father, put power in these words that you've given me to speak. 
Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. Don't store up your treasure here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store your treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. I'm in verse 32. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. Now, I don't, spend, I don't plan to spend a whole lot of time with this passage, like a traditional sermon where I sort of walk through this passage and unpack it. I want to use this passage this morning as a springboard just for the, the talk on generosity today. And so I love this passage. I never really looked at this passage before in the context of generosity, but it stood out to me this week as something that really, really applies. And Jesus opens this passage by telling us to not, not to store up our treasure here on earth, but to store our treasure in heaven. And what Jesus is talking about uh, there, for those of you who can't see that on the surface, is that Jesus is saying that where you invest your stuff really matters. Where you invest your stuff really matters. And not only does it matter, it really tells us and God where your heart is. Where you invest your time, your talent, your energy, your resource, where you invest your life is really telling. And it really communicates to you, uh, to God, what you really value and what you're really into. And so Jesus charges those of us who have come to faith to invest our treasure or to store our treasure or to put our resources in eternal things, toward eternal things, and, and uh, put that another way, toward things that matter to God and not so much acquiring the snacks of life. Paul puts it another way. The Apostle Paul puts it another way. He says, think on things eternal and not uh, on uh, things on this earth. And so Paul isn't suggesting that we sort of walk around with robes on and we just ponder about this, you know, the heavenly streets of gold and, and just wonder what the angels might be discussing today, that we preoccupy our thoughts with that. Basically what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying also, is once you invest your thoughts, why don't you invest your goods, your valuables, in something that God considers meaningful rather than being swept away in what this culture values. Why don't you invest your time and energy, your resources, your treasure, your treasure in the things that are important to God? Can he speak to those things? Can he give you some direction about what to do with your resources and your money and all the stuff that are valuable to you? Does God have a say in where you invest those things? He continues by saying that where you invest your treasure there your heart will be also. And so tethered to your checkbook, tethered to your calendar is your heart. And wherever you, you know, give your money to, your stuff to, your time to, for better or for worse, your heart will be in tow. Now that's a sobering thought. And all of a sudden you, you, you go through a real quick audit of where you spend your money and your heart just picture your heart just sitting on the table at Wendy's beating because that's where a quarter of your income goes. Or the Best Buy or the Guitar Center for uh, us music nuts, right? It's sobering to consider that tethered to our stuff is our heart. No matter what you say you're into, no matter what you say you value, just look at where you spend your time, your energy, your affection, your resource, your money. Because Jesus says, that's what you're into. And he walks through this continually, and then he ties, he ties sort of our unhealthy connection to our stuff and our unhealthy stewardship of our stuff to worry and fear. He says, don't worry about these things. Say, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? It almost seems unreasonable. 
And he's not saying that you shouldn't give some thought to what you wear or what you eat and that sort of thing. Those are sort of basic needs to stay alive. He's just saying you shouldn't be consumed with them. You shouldn't be occupied with them. They shouldn't drive you as unfortunately they drive so many of us. He finishes this short passage by saying, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. And basically what he's saying is something that we say very often, if you focus on God's stuff first, you move him in, he will give you what you need. You put God's stuff at the center of your life and at the center of your heart and wrap the rest of your life around that, God will meet you every single time. We're still talking about generosity this morning. And so Jesus gives us some very valuable advice here. And sort of tills the soil a little bit for what's to follow this morning. And what's to follow this morning is I'm going to give you five tips for how to engage generosity in light of what Jesus says to us. You ready? Let's start. The first tip is to examine your worldview. And we don't talk about generosity in this church without talking about worldview. Generosity is something that's rolling in your life a program that's running in your life, either it's running strongly or it's running weakly, but we know that that started somewhere. We know that whether you're a generous person or a selfish person, that started someplace, and so we look back to your worldview. And so we know that our worldview, how we view the world, how we see the world, and how we see people around us, and how we view money, and how we view relationships, all that stuff often points back to someplace. And usually that someplace is our family of origin. Family of origin. People who raised you, the family you grew up in, the circumstances of your family life. Often our worldview points back to some experiences. Good experiences, oftentimes bad experiences, shape our worldview. And when we're talking about our worldview, especially as it relates to whether we're generous or selfish, you have to consider that your experiences really dictate how generous or how selfish you are. You know anybody who lived through the Great Depression? I know a few people, and they're very, very tight. They're very, very, uh, uh, what's the nice word for cheap? What's the, <laughs> they're, they're frugal. It's frugal, right? Because they lived through something that really helped them to understand the finite nature of resource. And so in some good ways and oftentimes some bad ways, they have just learned to clamp down. Uh, because that really rainy day might hit, again, some of you have really been hit by the, the recession that, took, you know, that hit us you know, almost a decade ago. Y- you were upside down in your house. You had to move out. You know, and life got really tight for you. You couldn't find work. And so those experiences really shape our worldview, sometimes for the better, but oftentimes for the worse. And so when we talk about these two worldviews, we talk about scarcity versus abundance. You're either one or the other. And so it's helpful for us to examine where we sit as it relates to generosity. The scarcity worldview or the scarcity mindset says there's only so much. There's a limited supply. There's only so much to go around. And so when I view life through the lenses of scarcity, I'm filled with fear and anxiety. I'm always expecting this rainy day, not in a healthy sense where I'm just going to budget for some trouble, but like something's coming and I need to be ready. And something's uh, uh, coming, so I need, to, I need to squirrel away all these acorns because uh, uh, someday I'm going to need to cash them in. In like a fearful way and an anxiety, it just squeezes generosity in a way that's not helpful. And this isn't only limited to money. It's limited, it, it plays out as it relates to promotions. And somebody wins, you feel like you lost. Somebody gets praised, you automatically assume that, 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 that they're talking against you. And so this scared. there's only so much to go around. There's only so much of the good stuff to go around. Things are scarce, and a scarcity worldview will always stifle generosity. I say it over and over and over. A scarcity mindset will always stifle generosity. And some of you right now, you just had an epiphany. That's me. Like, that's, that's how I operate. That's how I think. That's how I live. That's why I'm not generous. On the other hand, and some of you have heard this before, there's the abundance worldview. There's enough to go around. We serve a big, huge God. He's got plenty for us. I'm not worried about it. There's more than enough. There's an abundant supply. 
We can both win. I can celebrate with you because if you got yours, mine must be coming shortly because there's a whole lot, and God is just sort of eager to lavish that upon us. And when you have an abundance worldview, you give freely. You celebrate more freely with others. You live a life of generosity because you know that no matter what you see in front of you and no matter what the circumstances, there is more. And so some of you are like, my goodness, I operate, I live out of this scarcity mindset. And so the challenge here is this, that's not going to get rewired overnight. You're not going to hear this truth and go, oh, okay, just let me just go switch that over to abundance. The challenge here is to push yourself to operate in abundance even when you feel the pinch of scarceness. i say that again. The challenge here is to operate as if you serve an abundant God who will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory even when you feel the pinch of scarcity. Now that's hard to do. But it's necessary because you won't live a generous life if you feel like there's only so much. You won't live the generous life if you camp out in the realm of scarcity. And so this really pushes back against doubt, right? And what is doubt? Doubt is when your circumstances cause you to question what you know is true about God. And what you know is true about God is that he will, he will, he will supply all of your needs. You said, Pastor, I got a wish list a mile long. And I say to you, what I've said to you over and over and over, is that if you don't have it, you probably don't need it. I was quiet today. If you don't have it, you probably don't need it. If it's true that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not need anything, then if you need stuff, that you don't have, then God is a liar. If you need stuff that you don't have, then that's not true. You say, preacher, you don't understand. I need a kidney. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. You don't understand, preacher. I, I need a job. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to do this and that. Listen, and may, maybe, it's, maybe it's true that the things we think that we need, we don't actually need. Maybe it's really true that all we need is Jesus. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whether I live or die, all I need is Christ. And so it takes a level of spiritual maturity to come to the conclusion that all I need is Jesus, and if I don't need it, if I don't have it, I don't need it. Imagine how that completely changes the game for you in terms of your contentment, in terms of generosity, if I don't have it, I don't need it. Because God is a God who meets my needs according to his plan. Examine your worldview. Let's keep moving. Second thing is to understand that it's all God's anyway. It's all his anyway. The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all the people belong to him. James chapter 1 verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from God above. This is the essence of our Christian understanding, is that we are stewards of the stuff that God has given us to manage. My car is not my car. My house is not my house. My kids are not my kids. My money is not my money. It's all God's. He's just given it to me to steward. He's given it to me to, 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 to master and to spend according to his purposes. My life is not my own. And again, this is what keeps us stuck. This is what keeps us from living the abundant life and keeps us from living a generous life because you think that your stuff is yours. You think that your stuff is yours. I worked for this, you say. Everything I got is because I worked hard for it. Everything I got is because I went to school. And I stayed up nights and I studied, and I'm not lazy. And so though this stuff is mine, I earned it. Oh, it's yours? You earned it. Did you will yourself to be born in the West? The land of opportunity? Did you will yourself to be born into the family that you were born in? 
uh, the race that you were born in, with the opportunities that are assigned to you because of those circumstances? Did you also bootstrap that as well? No, if, we live, if you live in the West, you're blessed. If you have spare change cup at the house, you're in the richest quarter of the world. And so God reminds us, he reminds us that this stuff is not ours. It's all his. It's all his. And one of the greatest, one of the greatest tests of whether or not you understand stewardship, the fact that the master has given you something to hold on to, to manage, one of the greatest tests of stewardship is how you respond when the master asks for a little bit of it back. I'll say that again because I want that to stick. One of the greatest tests of whether or not you understand stewardship in the Christian sense is how you respond when the master asks for some of it back. Or when the master says, hey, some of that money I gave you, hey, why don't you take it and give it to so-and-so? Why don't you take it and be a blessing to so-and-so? Why don't you sow it into that realm? And if you say, what? The master goes, see, see, we, we don't understand this. We need to go back to the drawing board because I gave you that to hold on to. I, I blessed you that to hold on to, and it's so abundant and so free. I said, hey, you can, you, can, you can live off of that. You can enjoy some of the, you know, the, 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 the sweets of life with that. You can enjoy that while you're holding on to it. But if I come knocking for the stuff that I told you to hold for me, and you draw back and you close your door and you call the police on me, you didn't understand the arrangement. And so many of us, that's where we falter. We don't understand that this is his. And should God come knocking and ask for some of his back, even if it's in a sort of systematic and regular way, the way we respond to that is one of the great tests. And how many of us would be honest, present company included, in saying that we regularly fail? the stewardship test. We regularly fail the stewardship test, even to the point where we may appear generous to outsiders. We may be appear, you know, people go, my goodness, did you see that? They put something in every time. My goodness, did you see how much stuff they gave away? I heard that they blessed so-and-so with a car. And you might seem like you're being so obedient when God has told you that he, he requires a bigger slice from you for whatever reason. It's one of the great tests. Do you understand that it's all his anyway? Let's keep moving here. Third tip, live within your means. Live within your means. And this is easy to say amen to. It's much harder to actually do it. Live within your means. It seems out of place to some of you in a generosity context. But if you don't live within your means, you, you simply won't have the capacity to give freely and generously. If you don't live within your means, you won't have the capacity. Which is really dangerous because that's just like saying, dang, I can't pay my taxes because I spend it all. Now, Uncle Sam doesn't work that way, right? He gets his before you, you know, you even get the thing. But, but that's just kind of like saying, hey, I, 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 I've spent all my money on the frivolous stuff of life, and all of a sudden the essentials, the gas bill of life, the grocery bill of life, the essential stuff that I actually need to survive, like I don't have any left over for that. Whoops. I'll try harder next time. And guess what happens? Because you're in a poor rhythm of your life, the same thing happens over and over and over and over. You haven't examined the scarcity mindset you, you live with. You haven't considered the fact that it's all his anyway. And so, therefore, you don't live it within your means because you're stricken with the Western sickness as an epidemic, uh, you know, affluenza. And you don't have to be affluent to be stricken with affluenza. All you have to do is live in the United States where, where, where the gathering of stuff is a, is a value um, that's smothering us in debt. People preoccupied with looking richer than they are never understand it. 
I guess I do understand it. I just, I still think it's stupid. In debt, you know, up to your eyeballs, but still spending. Well, I guess if they're sending me credit cards, I, I won't be rude. <laughs> more lines of credit, more stuff. Your bag is worth more than the, the, the car that you're driving. Live within your means. And here's why this is important. You don't live within your means. You, don't, you won't have this little thing that we call margin. And we talk about margin from time to time. You don't live within your means. You won't have margin. You see margin on the streets, right? Got that little space between the road and, you know, the grass. And you appreciate that because that gives you a little buffer. Between the road and that concrete barrier, you don't want to just you know, slip off the road and smack into that. You appreciate that. You appreciate margin in a book because it helps, you know, the words more, are more readable. We, we appreciate margin in, in all of our other areas of life, but we forsake it financially or with our resources. And we define margin over the years as the space between your load and your limit. Margin is the space between your load in your limit. Put another way, margin is the space between your income, what you make, what you bring in, and your expenses. The space between what you make and your expenses. And many of us, you know, we have far more expenses than we have income. Or we have just, I mean, just, just razor-thin margin, and you'll be fine so long as nothing happens that's irregular. You'll be fine it's as long as nobody gets a cold, as long as you don't have to buy any medication, as long as, you know, the kids don't throw their shoes in the river by accident, you know, you're okay. But as long as the slightest thing happens, it completely turns you upside down. Why? Because there's no margin. Now, if, if, if having no margin impacts just your day-to-day -day life, the functionality of your life, what might it do to generosity? If there's no space between your load and your limit, then it, it really frustrates and stifles generosity. Now, I would make the case, if I had the time, that the ways that God has called you to be generous should be included in what you consider to be your load. I'll say that again. I, I would make the case that the ways that God has called you to be generous to him and to others should be considered in what you call your load. It should be considered an expense that you have. And so if we budget it for that, if we consider that a non-negotiable, then we'd be more generous and it would be just part of the rhythm of our life. Part of the rhythm of our life. And for those of you who did this well, you just consider that what you, what you, what you owe God and what you set aside for others, that's just, you consider that as, 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 as hard and fast as a bill. And you dare not spend that on something frivolous because that's part of your load. And so you budget that into your whole framework of your finances and your resources such that you just kind of have to say no to some things because you want to maintain some margin in your life. And some of you, you say, I just, I just don't have it. But if you sit down... And you begin to identify the frivolous things, my, myself included, the frivolous things that we spend money on. Realizing, of course, that it's not ours to be loose with in the first place. We'd really have to reckon with this idea of stewardship. We really consider the fact that we're living beyond our means and it's wrecking us. It's wrecking us just in a practical financial sense, but it's also wrecking us because we have no room to be generous to God and to be generous to others. The greatest financial advice that I've ever been given is to spend less than you earn. Spend less than you earn. It really seems simple, right? But it's hard to do. Spend less than you earn because generosity is a capacity issue and many of us don't have the capacity to give simply because we don't live within our means, right? So we talked about examining our worldview. We've talked about considering that our resources are not our own. It belongs to God. 
anyway. We talked about living within our means. Fourth tip is to give to God. Fourth tip is to give to God or to invest your treasure, as Jesus said, in God's stuff. Now, some of you conjure up this ridiculous picture of you taking a $5 bill and just, you know, throwing it into the heavens and God just sucking it up and saying, thanks, sending you a receipt or something like that. That's not how it works. What it, what it looks like usually is that you invest in God's stuff here on earth. You invest in God's mission here on earth. You invest in God's people here on earth. And one of the best ways we do this uh, on the heels of last week's sermon is that we invest in the local church, particularly the church that you call home, particularly the church where you go and get fed, particularly the church where you and your family are, are, are being welcomed into the, in that particular local family, that local assembly. Um, and so this is part of the ways that we give to God. One of the ways that we give to God, the Bible calls a tithe. In Leviticus chapter 27, um, Moses says this, one-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields of fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. Count off every tenth animal from your herds and flocks and set them apart for the Lord as holy. Now, it's important to understand that currency back then was not like money so much as it was produce and livestock. And so God told Moses to give these instructions to his people, and so this would sort of take the guesswork out of what should be given to the Lord. Also, you know, a tithe this simply means a tenth. Tenth of your stuff, the first fruits of your stuff belongs to the Lord. It sort of takes the guesswork out of what we're supposed to offer unto the Lord. It's also highly transferable regardless of what your, you know, your, your, your income level is, Right? the Lord says everybody needs to bring $1,000, everybody. The person who only has $10 is like, dude, I can't participate. The person who has a million dollars is like, sure, okay, what's $1,000? But the Lord assigns to us something that everybody can participate in, and it takes the guesswork out of what we're supposed to sow regularly unto the Lord. Tithe is an act of worship Unto the Lord. And we, we even say as much when we are collecting the offering at the end of each and every one of our services. We say, now is the time for offering. This is an opportunity to worship God with our resources. It's an act of worship unto the Lord. And this is something that benefits us, even though it's a sacrificial outpouring of your resources. For those of us who understand, for those of us who have a rhythm of this in our life, we know that God blesses the life of generosity blesses those who regularly sow into God's stuff, invest our personal treasure, which we were sort of stewarding for God, into the kingdom of God, particularly through the local church. On the other hand, those of you who ha have no grid for this, you haven't gotten into the pattern of this, you, you just maybe think, hey, it doesn't really take all that. And let's just keep it all the way real today. Some of you are here, and you're giving church a try again. You've been sitting on your couch for a year because you've come out of a church uh, where you just weren't getting fed, saw a whole bunch of stuff going on, and especially as it related to giving, you were just sort of beat up and, and abused. We just want to be honest about it. You were taken advantage of, you were manipulated, and so it soured you uh, 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 away, sort of away from talking about this in a healthy way. And for, for those of you who are here today, let me just apologize on behalf of some of my coworkers who either had good intentions or devious ones, let me just apologize and say if you were being shaken down every single week and if somehow God's promises and, you know, was tethered to whether or not you could give $500 or $1,000 or maybe a prophecy today, if, if you want a really good prophecy, come down to the $500 line. And if you want to okay when you can come to the $100 line, and if you just have a few dollars, just stand over there and we'll, we'll get to you if, if we still have some time left in the meeting. If you had to endure that, on behalf of the family of faith, I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. I'm sorry that you were manipulated. I'm sorry that you were pimped and, you know, and just siphoned out of your money because of somebody's either ignorance or, or greed. I'm, I'm sorry 
Um, but that doesn't take away from the truth and reality of what God expects from us. There's a healthy way to do this. And I'm trying to present that to you this morning. And so for those of you who struggle in this area, you, you have some baggage that you bring to this conversation. I understand that, but I feel like you need to hear the word of the Lord today. So that's the tithe. And some of you, uh, some of you curiously ask, what is the tithe for? In other words, what, do you, what does the church do with the money? I was doing a career day at one of the middle schools in a few towns over, and I just, the kids could ask me whatever they want. And they had some really interesting questions. One of the kids said, well, what do the churches do with all the money? Good question, young man. And I had an answer for him. And I'm going to share that answer with you today. The short answer is this, that the money you give to your local church by way of the tithe and anything you choose to give over that is simply necessary for funding church life. And we say this over and over when we talk about giving because it just sometimes doesn't occur to people that everything that we do here, really, it costs money. Nearly everything that we do, everything that we provide, in some way or other, it costs money. And so your money that you give to support this local mission uh, goes to funding church life. Things like operational expenses, simple, non-spiritual things like phone and fax lines, internet, insurance, counting, bookkeeping, like those things cost money. And every time I try to call these guys and say, hey, can I just pray for you this time instead of sending, you know, I'm a preacher, maybe we can exchange, you know, some goods for prayer or something like that. They don't like that. They much rather have you know, us send them a check. And so it costs money to operate this ministry. Some of the money that you, that you give by way of your tithe and anything over that goes to pay staff salaries. And as a growing church, our staff is growing. In fact, in this last year, we've added two new staff people. India, uh, some of you know India. She, she just came on staff as our administrative assistant. Too many things were falling through the cracks. Frankly, I was dropping balls. Uh, as our church got larger, and we felt the need to hire somebody who would hand, handle the administrative things. And they, she's been hired for two weeks, and things are already running much smoothly. But, you know, part of what you give pays her salaries. Our kids' ministry is growing. They're bursting at the seams. And so we've uh, offered compensation to Nikki and Jordan, who uh, run our kids' ministry. And, of course, as a senior pastor here, uh, I draw a salary that's been set by our pastoral advisory council, our board. And they're one of our, our board's primary function is to help us spend God's money well, the money that you sow into this ministry. This is not like the pastor's purse. I, I, we have to answer to a faithful body of people that would rather see me go to jail than to see me make off with any of the money that you have given to support this mission here. So some of the money that you give goes towards staff, staff salary. Some of the money that you give goes toward equipment and supplies like you see video and technical equipment, instruments on the stage. You come in and you drink coffee and there's a spread of things here. You know, that, that, those things cost money. Children's ministry, their curriculum, their st- supplies and paper, all those sorts of things, those things cost money. We, we run an office here, several offices here, and those things are supplied. Listen, this, I know this doesn't seem that spiritual, but to bless this community and to do what we need to do, we're an organization. We, we operate as an organization. Not to mention the 10% of every dollar that you give goes to missions and giving. We feel like if we ask you to give, then we should be giving ourselves. We ask you to be generous, then we as a church should be generous as well. And so 3% of every dollar you give goes to our Puerto Rico partnership. We are in partnership with a, 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 a uh, our Puerto Rico partnership, and that's just a bunch of churches in the U.S. band together to financially support and resource the church planting efforts on the island of Puerto Rico. Many of you have seen me walk around with this Puerto Rico bracelet, and many of you have asked me, are you Puerto Rican? I, I want to say just a little bit. But really, this is just a reminder for me to, to, to consider and to pray for uh, the churches that are uh, being planted in Puerto Rico and the, effort, the ministry efforts that we have there. Uh, those are our faithful brothers, and we love to sow into them, not just with our money, but oftentimes we go, and some of us participate in mission trips and things like that. So 3, 3% of your income goes abroad. 4% of it stays here locally. We partner with Restoration Ministries. We cannot just give them our time, right? There's an opportunity to go and serve 
this weekend, Restoration Ministries from 945 to noon in Harvey, right? We not just go over and serve, but 4% of every dollar that you give goes to support the work that they do there. Halfway houses, recovery centers, after-school programs, food pantries. We'd have, to, we'd have to partner with seven different organizations in order to get what we get in partnering with them. So part of your money goes there, and 3% goes to support um, our, our, our national office. We're a part of an association of churches called the Vineyard Association of Churches, and 3% of your income goes there. And so 10% of your income goes out. When you give it, it goes out to support missions locally and around the world. Also, some of your minis- uh, the money that you give goes to benevolence. It goes to uh, helping the poor, both the poor and the needy in our community, uh, but also the poor and needy in the community around us. We often get calls. We often get solicited for, for support. We don't respond to all of those because we simply can't, and oftentimes people aren't being truthful. They're just going down the phone book, calling churches and trying to get resources. So we have to be discerning about that, but part of your income goes for benevolence and to help the poor. All of this money that you give to the local church, we steward it well, we set an annual budget, right? We think and pray a lot about where our money goes. We're accountable to others, but this is where your money goes, and it funds the ministry that we do here. And so when you give to God, particularly through the tithes, particularly through the local church, that's exactly where your money goes. And so if you can't go up to the the people that run the church and ask them where your money is going, you can't ask them to show you where it's going, then you should probably get out of there. All to say that if you want to see where our money is going, by the way, you get a financial statement with your giving statement every year around tax time. And so it's a very detailed uh, description of so where the money goes. But you should be able to ask and inquire about where your, uh, where your money is going in a local church context. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And I found that over the years, people have a little bit more buy-in when they understand that their money is going towards something functional and just not lining the preacher's pockets. So it's really important to give to God. Let me keep moving here. Uh, the fifth and final thing is to give to others. To give to others to give to others. And let me tell you something. If you square it away in your heart that you're going to give to God, it really primes the pump of generosity. It really does. And as you set those things in motion, even though the give to God in a regular way is, can be very taxing to a person who's not used to doing, do, doing that, what you'll find is that you begin to see and, and, and you begin to perceive needs in, in the world around you in ways that you haven't, Right? But for those of you who aren't there yet, I think it's important for us to get into a rhythm of giving to others. And to make this super simple, I'm going to give you three words that's going to make this simple. Here, near, far away. Here, near, and far away. And so when I say here, I don't mean particularly in this building, but I mean here, like be present like in your family, like people you live with. It's amazing to me how some people, for some reason, they can be super generous with everybody else. Super liberal in gifts, super liberal in compliments, in affection with everybody else. You've been in churches where this brother, you know, he can tell every sister in the church that she's looking fine today in this most creepy and inappropriate way, and his wife hasn't heard him say, I love you, in years. Doesn't have a kind word to say to her, but he could skip over her and, you know, everybody else. Everybody else's kid gets a pat on the head, but your kid can't, can't do anything right. Everybody else, you know, just benefits from your, you know, generosity, and you're quick to get, but, but the people who you live with, the people who, who, who put up with your behind, don't have access to you and your resource. There's something wrong with that. And so that's why I say here, like, are you generous with the people who you do life with? I know that doing life with people every day just sort of complicates, you know, things. Right? You see that person that, you know, you can be fond of them because you see them 15 minutes a week. 
but your kids are pulling on you, you know, and spilling, you know, you who all over the carpet, and your, you and your wife are getting into it, you and your husband. It, it, I know it's hard, right? But this is a discipline. This is a rhythm. The people who are nearest to you have access to your stuff. And so this whole near just is like extended, you know, people in your extended life, the people you work with, your friends. I would even go as far as to include the people you do community life with. I'm not saying everybody needs to be on your Christmas list. And generosity certainly isn't, certainly isn't reduced to physical sort of material resource. But the goods of who you are, the people you do life with on a regular basis, do they have access to your financial resource? Do they have access to your emotional resource? Are you generous? Are you liberal in that sense? And so this isn't designed to go real deep on this, but just, I mean, I, th- I think it's not hard to answer these questions. So here, near, and then there's far away. There's far away. And some examples of far away is, just, you know, a couple weeks ago, we uh, uh, collected an offering because we heard of a need in Baton Rouge. And many of you responded. We collected about $1,300, and we sent it to the vineyard in Baton Rouge. But that's a, that's a faraway need, right? We hear something, we go, oh, my goodness. That would be, that would be terrible if, if, if I were in the mix of that. Let me, I don't have much, but let me, let me respond to that. Go to a Christian concert, and they're talking about World Vision kids, and just for a few bucks a month, you can support. And some of you go, you know what? That's not too much to ask. Like, that's, that's far away. That's not in my neighborhood. That's not in my backyard. But that's like a faraway thing. Some of you find missions like Convoy of Hope and Habitat for Humanity, other things that are worthwhile where you say, you know what, that's not like in my space right now, but let me give to that. I think God expects us to give in those realms, here, near, and far away. And so what that looks like from person to person really, really varies. It's not for me to dictate what that looks like for you, but it's for you to ask yourself those questions. The people here in my presence, in my you know, close proximity. They have access to my generosity. People who are near me and the people who are far away, this is something for you uh, to wrestle with. And so, worship team, you can come up as I, as I land this thing. And so some of you are asking, after you heard all this, where do I begin? How do I start? Three things I'm going to give you real quickly, and some of you have heard them before. The first thing you can do is to give systematically. We said this last time, and many of you reported that, that, that really, like, the penny dropped when you heard that. Give systematically. And what that basically means is some of us are hardwired to be generous, and it's instinctive. We, 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 we're just distracted by needs. And we're always, we're just on the lookout for it, and, and we're just, there's no problem for us seeing and responding to needs. Others of us don't have those instincts. And so we have to program generosity in our life. We have to program it. You say, I'm not real good. I conveniently forget to give to God. I conveniently forget to give to others. And so I have to, like, program this in my life. I have to make this a systematic thing. And if you're tithing, that's like a regular thing, right? And some some people say, I can't trust myself to write a check every week. I need to give online. I need to set up a reoccurring thing just so it rolls just without me doing anything. And so giving needs to be systematic for some of you. Some of you need to get a reminder in your phone or set a line item budget. $50 a month is going to go to somebody other than us. We're going to bless it. You say to your wife, you say, listen, $50 a month, we're going to bless somebody. We're going to look for needs. And $50 a month, we're just going to put it in the budget. So some of us won't develop this rhythm without being systematic. Second thing is to give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. If it's not costing you something, if it doesn't put you out a little, if you don't have to not do something so that you can do that, it's, not, it's probably not working right. If it's not a sacrifice, it's probably not working right. If you don't have to put something back on the shelf so that you can be generous, it's usually not right. It's got to be a sacrifice. And finally, give secretly. This is between you and God. Don't broadcast this. This is not how this works. Jesus said you broadcast it. You already got your reward. Don't expect anything. Give secretly. This is between you and God. Put God to the test. Put God to the test. Let the generous life. Try it for a week. Try it for two weeks. And my prayer is that God would just show you some immediate fruit for those of you who are skeptical. Put God to the test. My time is up. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word. For some of us, Lord, it cut us a little bit. For some of us, we felt pinch. 
of this a little bit, but your righteous truth, Lord, sets us free, and it puts us on the right path to live the good life and to honor you in ways that are meaningful to you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the strength and courage to be obedient. Some of us don't need prayer. We don't need to talk to the preacher. We just need to do some things differently, Lord. Would you give us the strength and courage to do that and to do so consistently? Father, there are those here who who have just been living beneath generosity, and they know better. And you're challenging them right now, Lord, to, to, to do different, to live better, to be obedient to you, Father. I pray that you would do that. Lord, I finally pray that there's any sense of condemnation, is there any sense of shame, any sense of guilt? Lord, I pray that you break that and remind us that that is not from you. You bring conviction of your Holy Spirit. You put your finger on certain things in our life so that we might live and respond in a more excellent way. So come, Holy Spirit, remove the guilt, remove any bondage, condemnation, so that we can live this life for you. And as we worship you, Lord, continue to do your work within us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.